so we're, uh, we're still in Philippians. We're still in chapter one. We're making our way. Uh, last week, we looked at basically Paul reporting on himself, reporting on, you know, what's going on and how he's thinking about it. And we learned that he, he's, we didn't learn this from the text, but we know that he is imprisoned. He's likely in Rome. And he told us, he told this Philippian church how he feels about it. And we learned that he was able to look at his present circumstance, which on all accounts was kind of a bummer. He's in prison. He's, he's not free. He's being overseen by Roman guards 24-7. But he was able to look at this present circumstance with a different set of priorities. He looked at his circumstances with gospel priorities, and it turned out, so, so it happened, that God used this circumstance while he was in prison to advance the gospel even further than it might have advanced if he were not in prison. And so Paul's on board with that. He's like, okay, God, like if that's how you want to do this thing, like I'm, I'm cool. I'm down with that. And so that is his present circumstance. So now this morning in our passage today, Paul turns from his present circumstance, you know, I'm imprisoned, I'm in Rome, and he turns to pondering the future, pondering what was going to happen to him. And Paul, unlike any of us, I hope, uh, was facing the very real possibility of being executed, being put to death. But for Paul, just like for all of us, the future was uncertain. He couldn't see it. He didn't know what was going to happen. You know, I don't know about you, but I'm not the biggest fan of the future being uncertain. I like to know things are going to go well in advance. And when things get foggy, I get stressed. And we all have seasons where we face an uncertain future. And we all have seasons where we face an uncertain future that might even have bleak possibilities. Where if, if you look at all the options, most of them might be negative, might, might be a bummer turnout. So, and we could be processing that in, in regards to our whole life. You know, what is my life? How is my life going to unfold? Uh, or we could be worrying about the future in a conversation that's scheduled for next week. You know, what is going to happen in this crucial conversation that I have to have with this person? None of us knows how our lives are going to unfold. None of us knows for sure that we will retire at a ripe old age and peacefully die in our sleep surrounded by our loved ones. How do we look toward our future? And how do we do it in a way that's Christian? How do we do it in a way that's informed by Christ? Thankfully, this morning we get to see how Paul does it. So let's look at Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 18, and we'll read through verse 26. So in verse 18, Paul says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. We're just going to pause there real quick. Last week, we looked at how the gospel was advancing while he's in prison, and people were being emboldened to preach, but it turned out that 
it wasn't just people who had good motives. It was also people that wanted to gain a bigger following than Paul and kind of rub it in his face. So that's what he's referring to when he says, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. And we'll move into our passage this morning. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray. Dear Father, I pray that this passage, as mind-blowing as it is, would, would make its way in. Lord, that we wouldn't just look at this and go, wow, Paul's different and amazing and wow. But that, Lord, we'd, we'd get to see a picture of what it could look like for us to prioritize our future with you in the same way he does. So I pray that your spirit would just speak to us wherever we're at, whatever we're carrying, whatever we're thinking about. Um, help us to lay all of it aside and listen to what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so in verse 18, Paul is making a transition. Like I said, he's, he's transitioning from discussing the present to considering the future. And when he says, yes, and I will rejoice, Paul displays an expectation of joy in the future. He's like, I, I will rejoice. I am rejoicing, and I also will rejoice. And another word to describe expectation of joy in the future is hope. Hope is like a beam of light from the future. It's like when you're, when you're in a dark season, when you're in a dark night of the soul, and then all of a sudden you have a realization that things won't always be this way. That's hope. And sometimes it just hits you and you're like, thank you, God. I've been in, the, in a fog for weeks, days, hours, however long. In this passage, we have the privilege of being let into Paul's innermost thoughts. It's really fascinating because he doesn't, he doesn't give these kinds of thoughts very often. This is one of the most uh, lengthy kind of elaborations on his own thinking that we have in his whole uh, corpus, <laughs> they call it. And we see when we arrive inside Paul's brain that he has a legitimate, rock-solid gospel hope. That that is just core to his very being. That this expectation of joy in the future, this hope that he has is rooted in Christ and it enables him to do a few things. It enables him to face the future, whatever it is, with confidence, head held high, bring it on. 
but not just face the future, it enables him to, to face it with a smile on. It enables him to let it come with joy. It enables him to expect that he will rejoice in the future. And it also enables him to have a posture of others' focus. We'll find at the end of this passage that this hope that he has secures him enough to be able to then focus his life on the, the progress and the joy of other people, not just himself. And this is, all of this is so much easier said than done. You know, it's, it's, it's easy to be hopeful about the future when, when things are going well. But what about when we can't see above the clouds? What about when we're depressed? What about when it's not so clear that things will turn out well? How does Paul connect even his sufferings with this hope? Before we dive into these verses, I want to just real quick turn to the left to Paul's letter to the Romans. And this letter to the Romans he wrote to the church he is while he's writing Philippians, this is the church he's involved with because he's in Rome. He's in touch with these Roman Christians. But he wrote this letter to the Romans five years before this, before he had even met any of them. And he wrote it as kind of a, a um, support letter. Like, hey, can you, can you support my journey over to Rome and beyond? And so go ahead and turn, turn to the left to the book of Romans chapter 5. What I want us to see in this passage in Romans 5 is the uninterrupted line that Paul draws from suffering to hope. And for Paul, it's a, it's a direct, connected line from suffering to hope, and it's fascinating. So let's look at Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And then he says, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Do you see that progression? Do you see how Paul basically connects those four things just straight across, an uninterrupted line from suffering to hope? And look at it for a minute. Suffering produces endurance. You know, have you experienced that? Where you go through something difficult, and then once you're through it, once you're on the other side, once God has brought you through it, and then you face something similar, you find you, you're like, I've, I've been through this before. Or I've been through something like this, and I know I can get through this again. That's endurance. And then he says, uh, Endurance produces character. You know, have you found that the areas where you've experienced personal growth are the very areas that you have endured something difficult? 
So to endure something time and time and time again, that equals character. And so for Paul, it is this character formation that produces hope. So why is that? Why does this formation of his character through suffering, through uh, endurance, through character, why does it produce hope for him? We find it right at the very end. It's, it's through this entire process, as we are going through life, as we are learning these things, as we are suffering and building these character qualities, the whole time it's been God's love poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So once again, as we, as we consider this morning's passage, we, we need to do our best not to read it as a knock on us for not being like Paul. The gospel hope that Paul has, that he embodies, it stems from his knowledge of God's miraculous hand on his life. That even suffering is God's hand on his life, bringing him from situation to situation to, and then building in him endurance and endurance and then producing in him character and character formation that he could not ever have done himself. And so God's miraculous hand on his life changing him in ways he never thought he could by the Holy Spirit. And so it's, it's directly because of these sufferings that Paul has become living proof of God's love. And so that's that line he draws from suffering to hope. So let's return to our passage this morning and learn what effect this gospel hope has on Paul's view of his own future. And what's happening is he's sitting there imprisoned expecting a trial date. And the date is set. He doesn't know what it's going to be. Good news, bad news, life, death. This is the future that's hanging in the balance for Paul. And so he, he exemplifies that we can face this future in confidence here in verse 18 through 20. Let's read it again. He says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So he's gearing up. And once again, he differentiates himself from pretty much every other human being on earth when he places his highest goal, not on being acquitted and set free, but by Jesus being glorified. That's his highest ideal. Jesus needs to be honored in his body, whether it's by life or by death. That's what he's asking for prayer for. That's what he's hoping works out. His greatest fear is that Jesus wouldn't get the glory. Not that he would get the death penalty. And it's tempting to assume that word deliverance here. When he says, this will turn out for my deliverance. It's tempting to assume that's probably deliverance from prison, right? And that word actually is salvation. But it's not deliverance from prison that he's hoping for. Because verse 20 says that this will turn out for my deliverance and it's my hope that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. 
So he's not confident of his deliverance from prison in this passage. He's confident of his deliverance, which equals for him the magnification of Christ that comes through whatever situation or circumstance he enters. How does Paul want this to go down? How does he want to be remembered in his last moments on earth while testifying to Jesus? All he wants is to go out unashamed. All he wants is to stand tall with full courage and testify to Jesus. That's all he wants. And that word full courage, it, it doesn't just mean sort of an inner state of mind, like I'm, I'm being courageous right now. It's, it's actually a, a behavioral word. It's a boldness like a frankness or an openness. Like he's willing to speak of Jesus no matter what. He's frank in his speech about Jesus. He wants to be able to stand before Jesus and say that to the very end he spoke openly whatever the consequence, no matter the cost of the wonder and beauty of his Lord. He was never silent out of fear of the consequences. He never shrunk back from an opportunity to speak of the treasure he found in Jesus. And remember, Jesus found him. Paul was not looking. Jesus interrupted him while he was in the middle of doing horrible things, destroying Christians. Jesus interrupted him and found him. And for Paul, that changed his life. And Jesus became his ultimate treasure. And it's easy to read this and just be like, seriously, Paul? Great. You're a superhero Christian. I get it. I don't know how you're that way, but you are. But I don't want us to miss the, the dependence that Paul uh, gets across in verse 19. The neediness that he displays. He says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. How is he this confident? How is he this not worried about going to his death? It's two ways. It's through the prayers of his community and through the provision of the Holy Spirit. And it's through, so first, through the prayers of his community. This is, this is another reminder that Paul is not a lone ranger Christian. You know, he, he needs the prayers of his community. All of Scripture is clear on this point. Prayer works. The prayers of human beings does stuff that it wouldn't otherwise happen. We've already discovered that in this letter. Paul opened it up with prayer and the power of prayer, making my prayer with joy. It's my prayer that your love may abound. Paul knows the power of prayer, and he exhorts it at the end of the book. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And then he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul needs the prayers of his community. If you're trying to muscle your way through life, or even your Christian life, by yourself, stop. Stop. 
You're going to be like the sick and elderly buffalo picked off by the lion on the prairie. You can't live the Christian life in isolation. It can't be done. Don't even try. It's the prayers of these people for Paul that brings the provision of the Spirit. We need one another. We need prayers for one another. And Paul knows it. So we shouldn't read this and be like, man, Paul's just a superhero Christian, awesome. I'm going to try and be, you know, just a, just a regular Christian. No, no. Paul's just a regular Christian. He's just as needy for prayer as you are. And just as needy for the Spirit. And the Greek, the Greek here, when it says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, those two are linked. So that it's, it's these two things are directly connected. That it's the prayers of this community that bring this provision of the Spirit. You could read it, I know that through your prayers, which bring the help of the Spirit, this will turn out for my deliverance. Isn't that amazing? That our prayer for one another during hard times does stuff. And it doesn't necessarily change the outcome as far as what happens physically, what happens in, in the trial, the circumstance, but it brings true provision, which is the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And so according to this passage, prayer for one another matters and it works. And then the provision of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit here is referred to as the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And this is the only time that the Holy Spirit is referred to in this way uh, with the full name, with Jesus Christ. But elsewhere, uh, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Jesus, or the Spirit of God, or the Holy Spirit. These are all synonyms. These are all synonyms for the same third person of the Trinity. And Paul's probably referring to the Spirit in this way because of what's coming, because of the situation he's describing. Of course Christ will be honored in my body because he's right there by his Spirit. The very Spirit of Jesus Christ is in him, comforting him, empowering him, encouraging him, ministering to him, turning a horrible situation into just another chance to live and suffer for Jesus. So, Paul was needy, just like we are, just like I am. And these two things, these prayers and the provision of the Spirit, they enabled him to face what was coming with confidence. And next we find that Paul doesn't just face the future with confidence, but he's able to enjoy it. Can you imagine? No matter what. Look at verse 21 through 23. So this is where we're getting into his head. He says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So his mention of, you know, whether by life or by death, that kicks off an internal dialogue for Paul. It's like, hmm, what do I think of the possibility of death? Hmm, to me, and then he goes on. And what we need to reject is reading these verses and having any inkling that Paul is either suicidal or escapist. 
He is not saying to live is drudgery and I want out. No. He says to live is Christ. And if, he's, and if he goes on living, it says it means fruitful labor for me. It means I get to get back doing what I love. And I'm enjoying it. I love my vocation as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, to the non-Jewish people. So don't get him wrong. He's not depressed and he's not suicidal. But at the same time, when he gets a chance to think about the very possible reality that he might be executed soon, he can't help but ponder how, in fact, it will be glorious. Get that. For Paul, living and dying are, are both connected to one reality, Christ. When Paul gets right down to it, even though he is torn between these two possibilities, and don't get the word wrong, he doesn't get to choose. But if he were given the choice, he might choose death. He doesn't get to choose. It, it, it's more of, yet which I shall prefer. You know, it's, it's not as if he's given the option. But when, he, when he's between these two possibilities, he, if given the choice, might choose death. Why is that? Well, for him, he had a, a fully orbed understanding that if he dies, he gets to be with Jesus. And Paul's highest goal is just that. It's to stand before Jesus face to face. That's his highest goal, what he wants most out of life. He longs to hear the words of Jesus that Jesus gives in Matthew 25, verse 23, when the master says to his servant, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter your master's joy. Paul's excited for that day. And if given the choice of having that day be today, he'd probably say yes. That verse, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That stands in stark contrast to everything the secular world says about everything on so many levels. The world says to live is, why don't you go ahead and fill in the blank? That's what the world says. To live is Whatever. A chance. Well, I'm talking about what the world says. To live is your one chance at happiness. To live is your one chance at love. To live is your one chance at whatever. Make your own meaning. Figure out a way to, to find meaning in this meaningless place that happened by chance. And to die is the end. To die is total annihilation. To die is empty, meaninglessness, darkness, done. That's what the world says. And of course, with a message like that, most people grasp at their one chance to suck a little bit of pleasure out of this life. 
Why wouldn't they? To suck a bit of pleasure out of a life that's too short and that is not guaranteed to last longer than today. Of course that leads to selfishness, greed, lust, power grabbing. Of course. How could it not? How would you fill in those blanks? How would you answer those those questions? To live is, to die is. For Paul, both living and dying point somewhere else, to someone else. Living isn't for me. Dying isn't for me. They're both for Christ. Elsewhere, Paul elaborates on living for Christ in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I do live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that's the key. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. That's where Paul finds his very motive and foundation for living. Who loved me and gave himself for me. So, in either scenario, life or death, Paul is content and at peace. Because he's with Jesus. He can enjoy the drudgery of life because Jesus is with him. He can enjoy the prospect of execution because it is his doorway to seeing Jesus face to face. And so it's this attitude, this this gospel hope that he has that it enables him to redirect his concerns, his energy outward. Living is not for me. Dying is not for me. It's all for Jesus. And it turns out Jesus wants me to give my life away to others. And so in the rest of our passage, we see his concern for how his fate would affect his friends in the Philippian church. Look at verses 24 to 26. He says, But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And so Paul realizes that as he approaches this fork in the road and he's not driving, you know, he can't lose, but they can win. They can win if he's still around. They can be encouraged if he's still there. And so Paul becomes aware and convinced that God might just keep him around a while to encourage these believers. Paul teaches us here that when your future in God is secure, you're no longer afraid to give your future away to others. Since to live is no longer to get what you can before you go extinct, you can be generous with your life. The stakes are all of a sudden less tight-fisted because you have eternity ahead of you. Look at Paul's priorities for them. 
He says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So he has two priorities there, their progress, but also their joy. That word progress is the same word as we saw in verse 12 of chapter 1, when Paul talks about how his imprisonment served to advance the gospel. It's the same word. So here, while he's giving a news update of himself, his two priorities are the advance of the gospel and the advance of those who have been saved by the gospel. He wants everyone in this church to grow in their faith. And if that means he sticks around a few more years, encourages some more people, preaches a little bit more, then so be it. And so he's, he's concerned with their progress. And, and of course, progress means so many things, but it would mean spiritual growth, knowledge of the scriptures, doctrine, just maturity in your faith. But notice it isn't just progress that Paul prioritizes. He also wants everyone in this church to grow in their joy. The Christian life shouldn't just be a bummer. It shouldn't. I was reading a commentary a few months ago, and it was talking about how theologians should be the happiest people on earth because they get to search inside some of these vast realities of the goodness of God. And as as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, though we do face horrible times, just like the psalmist is just kind of even doubting God because of it, the Christian life should also be one of joy because Jesus is with us. Jesus loves us. And so Paul wants everyone to grow not just in in sort of doctrinal progress and maturity, but in joy. Just like himself, he doesn't want this church to just endure the coming season, but to enjoy it, to be lighthearted, to, to have that lighthearted gospel hope. That's what he wants for them. Even when it includes seasons of suffering, to have joy in the midst You know, for Paul, perhaps this is why Paul is going to keep him around a while, so that they can look at him as sort of this living proof that this is possible. And that's what we see in verse 26. He says, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Look at how faithful God has been to me. Just look how incredible God is based on what he's done in me. And then you can glory in Christ. That word glory is the same word Paul uses elsewhere for boasting. You can just boast in how amazing God is because of the testimony I have in my own situation, even the situations I have no control over. And you can be full of confidence, even to boasting in Jesus because of me. This gospel hope that Paul has here is mind-blowing. But it's not out of reach. If Jesus Christ of Nazareth really rose from the dead, 
2,000 years ago. As has been attested to by eyewitness testimony who wrote it down for us. If he really did do that, then perhaps this gospel hope is also for us. Jesus didn't just rise again with a brand new second generation human body to go enjoy it alone with God the Father. No. The Bible says that Jesus rose again as the firstborn of all creation, as the firstborn among the dead, meaning that the first person on earth who conquered death won't be the last. He's, he blazed the trail for us to conquer death because of what he's done. His resurrection proved it. It was the receipt. This worked. The death that he bore for our sins worked. And resurrection has begun. I know someone who died of cancer. And before she died, I married her and her fiancé in the, in the hospital. It was beautiful. You know, I was able to preach the gospel to a, a lobby full of just random people at Swedish. But unfortunately, this patient wasn't a believer. And ultimately, she died of that cancer. But before she died, she, per- she purchased entry into a biotech futurist company program that severed her head right after she died and placed it in a vat in Arizona. It's there right now. The idea that this company is based on is that at some point, dozens, hundreds, thousand years in the future, the scientific and medical community will be able to create nanorobots to enter those cells that, that went wrong to create her cancer and fix it. Then, of course, because we'll be advanced enough, they'll grow her a new body with new organs, new arms, new legs, new heart, and reattach her head so that she can reunite with her husband who is going to enter the same program. And it's a measly price of $80,000. You, you too can be in a vat in Arizona. That's one option. That's one option for hope. But there's a better option. The better option is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me just read you. You don't have to turn there, but Paul gets at this eyewitness testimony that is super important because we're not just, we don't just have blind faith. We don't just believe it because it sounds cool and it's a way to deal with our problems. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you as of first importance, so basically the first thing I told you, Corinthian church, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, a.k.a. Go, ahead, go ask them, although some have fallen asleep. 
Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That's the gospel. Gospel isn't just this spiritual, ethereal sense and vibe. Gospel is a political word. It means good news. There's a new kingdom. This king won. You are now subjects or can be subjects of a new kingdom, and it's a better one. How do I know that? Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Really happened. That's the gospel. That Christ died for us. Christ died for sinners, of whom I am the worst. Paul said that, but I can say it too. If you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit will resurrect your body. It says that in Romans 8. Just like he resurrected Jesus' body, he will resurrect yours. I plead with you this morning, if you have not adopted that hope for your own, for life and for death, I plead with you to accept it. And that's not, I'm not just trying to make an emotional plea to you. I'm just saying it's there. And there's reason. And it's good. And it's available to you. The world does have some truth in their perspective when they say life is short. We don't know if we have tomorrow. The hope of life that Jesus offers is available today. So if you've never accepted Jesus' offer of life for now and life for later, I'd love to give you a chance to do that this morning. And if you have already trusted Jesus for your hope, like most of us have, I'd love to pray with you to recommit your living to him. I love what Gandalf said, no, Dumbledore, (laughs) says to Harry, don't pity the dead, pity the living. Because sometimes it's a lot harder to live for Christ than imagining how hard it would be to die for him. Imagine submitting your entire being to Jesus again, fresh, this morning. So I'd love to invite you to do that so that once again you can say, to live is Christ. Not anything else. Not Christ plus the Super Bowl. No, I know none of you really care about it. Um, and truly fill in the blank with the only person who will truly be life for you. So let's go ahead and pray. Everyone go ahead and bow your heads, close your eyes. Um, if, if you're here this morning and you have never taken on that gospel hope for yourself that is rooted and founded in Jesus Christ, um, and you want to do that this morning for the first time, um, with everyone's eyes closed and, and heads bowed, I, I just invite you to go ahead and put up your hand. God bless you. God bless you, brother. Just give it another moment. If anyone else wants to pray with me to receive that gospel hope this morning, um, put up your hand and I'll lead you in a prayer. Okay, so for those of you who, ro- who raised your hand, go ahead and pray this prayer after me, whether it's out loud, quietly to yourself, or, or just in your heart. 
Go ahead and pray this prayer with me. Dear Jesus, I thank you that you're alive. I believe that you died for my sins and that you rose from the dead and that because of that action, I can be reunited with God. First and foremost, I just want to say I need that. Because I am a sinner. I do wrong things. And I need a Savior. Someone who can cleanse me from that sin. And Jesus, I accept you as my Savior. And because you saved me, I want to also say Jesus is now Lord. I don't want just your cleansing. I want your leading. Please give me the gift of your Holy Spirit so that I can now walk with you day by day until death. Thank you, God, for paving a way to be reconciled with you. And it's in Jesus' name I ask. Amen.